0: There's a lot of talk in the US and other countries at the moment about banning books and book censorship. This is an absolutely ridiculous notion, and this podcast and YouTube channel is 100% against the idea of book banning. It's an insane thing to do. But if your government is preventing you from accessing certain information through geo-blocking or government censorship, Surfshark VPN is here to help. With their No Borders feature, simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers, and read whatever you please without any governmental interference. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and read what you please without any censorship or geo-blocking. With continual development in technology, hackers and cybercriminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run-of-the-mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real-time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers. And most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. Uh, apologies if there's anything strange going on in the background uh, sound-wise. My sound deepening, uh, my sound dampening more so, is quite good for where I am. Uh, but I also live in France, and there's quite a lot of explosions going on outside due to the protests against the Macron's... Uh, um, retirement reform so um, yeah explosions are loud, and um, sometimes I can't quite get rid of all of them so apologies if you do hear any of those um, I try my best but you know uh, their cause is more important than, than whatever this is. <laughs> uh, let's get started. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Chapter 12 The Minister's Vigil Walking in the shadow of a dream, as it were, and perhaps actually under the influence of a species of somnambulism, Mr. Dimmesdale reached the spot where, now long since, Hester Prynne had lived through her first hours of public ignominy. The same platform or scaffold, black and weather-stained, with the storm or sunshine of seven long years, and footworn, too, with the tread of many culprits who had since ascended it, remained standing beneath the balcony of the meeting-house. The minister went up the steps. It was an obscure night of early May. An unwearied pall of cloud muffled the whole expanse of sky from the zenith to horizon. If the same multitude which had stood as eyewitnesses while Hester Prince sustained her punishment could have now been summoned forth, they would have discerned no face above the platform, nor hardly the outline of human shape in the dark grey of the midnight. But the town was all asleep. There was no peril of discovery. The minister might stand there, if it so pleased him, until morning should redden in the east, without other risk than the dank, chill night air would creep into his frame and stiffen his joints with rheumatism and clog his throat with catra and cough, thereby defrauding the expectant audience of tomorrow's prayer and sermon. No one could see him, save that ever wakeful one which had seen him in his closet, wielding the bloody scourge. Why then had he come hither? A mockery indeed but in which angels blushed and wept, while fiends rejoiced with jeering laughter. Had he been driven hither by the impulse of that remorse which dogged him everywhere, and his own sister and closely linked companion was that cowardice which invariably drew him back, with their tremulous grip, just when the other impulses had hurried him back to the verge of a disclosure. Poor, miserable man. What right had infirmity like his to burden itself with crime? crime is for the iron-nerved, who have their choice either to endure it, or, if it pressed too hard, to exert their fierce and savage strength for a good purpose, and fling it off at once. This feeble and most sensitive spirits could do neither, yet continually did one thing or another, which intertwined in the same inextricable knot the agony of heaven-defying guilt and vain repentance. And thus, while standing on the scaffold, in this vain show of expiation, Mr. Dimmesdale was overcome with a great horror of mind, as if the universe were gazing at a scarlet token on his naked breast, right over his heart. On that spot, in very truth, there was, and there had long been the gnawing and poisonous tooth of bodily pain. Without any effort of his will, or power to restrain himself, he shrieked aloud, an outcry that went pealing through the night and was beaten back from one house to another and reverberated in the hills in the background, as if a company of devils, detecting so much misery and terror in it, had made a plaything of the sound, and were banding it to and fro. It is done, muttered the minister, covering his face with his hands. This whole town will awake, and hurry forth and find me here. But it was not so. The shriek had perhaps sounded with far greater power to his own startled ears than it actually possessed. The town did not awake, or, if it did, the drowsy slumberers mistook the cry, either for something frightful in a dream, or for the noise of witches, whose voices, at that period, were often heard to pass over the settlements, or lonely cottages, as they rode with Satan through the air. The clergyman, therefore, hearing no symptoms of a disturbance, uncovered his eyes and looked about him. At one of the chamber windows of Governor Bellingham's mansion, which stood at some distance on the line of another street, he beheld the appearance of the old magistrate himself with a lamp in his hands, a white nightcap on his head, and a long white gown enveloping his figure. He looked like a ghost evoked unseasonably from the grave. The cry had evidently startled him. At another window of the same house, moreover, appeared the old mistress Hibbins, the governor's sister, also with a lamp, which, even thus far off, revealed the expression of her sour, discontented face. She thrust forth her head from the lattice and looked anxiously upward. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, this venerable witch lady had heard Mr. Dimmesdale's outcry and interpreted it, with its multitudinous echoes and reverberations, as the clamour of fiends and night hags with whom she was well known to have made exertions into the forest. Detecting the gleam of Governor Billingham's lamp, the old lady quickly extinguished her own and vanished. Possibly she went up among the clouds. The minister saw nothing further of her motions. The magistrate, after a wary observation of the darkness, into which, nevertheless, he could see but a little further than he might into a millstone, retired from the window. The minister grew comparatively calm. His eyes, however, were soon greeted by a little glimmering lamp, which, at first a long way off, was approaching up the street. It threw a gleam of recognition on here a post, and there a garden fence, and here a latticed window-pane, and there a pump with its full trough of water, and here again an arched door of oak with an iron knocker and a rough log for the doorstep. The Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale noted all of these minute particulars, even when firmly convinced that the doom of his existence was stealing onward in the footsteps which he now heard, and that the gleam of the lantern would fall upon his face in a few moments more and reveal his long-hidden secret. As the light drew nearer, he beheld within its illuminated circle, his brother clergyman, or, to speak more accurately, his professional father, as well as highly valued friend, the Reverend Mr Wilson, who, as Mr Dimmesdale now conjectured, had been praying at the bedsides of some dying man. And so he had. The good old minister came freshly from the death chamber of Governor Winthorpe, who had passed from the earth to heaven within that very hour. And now... Surrounded like the saint-like personages of olden times, with a radiant halo that glorified him amid this gloomy night of sin, as if the departed governor had left him with an inheritance of his glory, or as if he had caught upon himself the distant shine of the celestial city, while looking thitherward to see the triumphant pilgrim pass within its gates. Now, in short, Good Father Wilson was moving homeward, aiding his footsteps with a lighted lantern. The glimmer of this luminary suggested the above conceits to Mr. Dimmesdale, who smiled, nay, almost laughed at them, and then wondered if he were going mad. As the Reverend Mr. Wilson passed beside the scaffold, closely muffling his Geneva coat about him with one arm, and holding the lantern before his breast with the other, the minister could hardly restrain himself from speaking. Good evening to you, Venerable Father Wilson. Come hither, I pray you, and pass a pleasant hour with me. Good heavens! "'Had Mr. Dimmesdale actually spoken?' "'For one instant he believed these words had passed his lips, "'but they were uttered only within his imagination. "'The venerable Father Wilson continued to step slowly onward, "'looking carefully at the muddy pathway before his feet, "'and never once turning his head towards the guilty platform. "'When the light of the glimmering lantern had faded quite away, "'the minister discovered, by the faintness which came over him, "'that the last few moments had been a crisis of terrible anxiety.' although his mind had made an involuntary effort to relieve itself by a kind of lurid playfulness. Shortly afterwards, the grisly sense of the humorous again stole in among the solemn phantoms of his thought. He felt his limbs growing stiff with the unaccustomed chilliness of the night, and doubted whether he should be able to descend the steps of the scaffold. Morning would break and find him there. The earliest riser, coming forth in the dim twilight, would perceive a vaguely defined figure aloft on the place of shame and half-crazed betwixt alarm and curiosity, would go knocking from door to door, summoning all the people to behold the ghost as he needs must think it, some defunct transgressor. A dusky tumult would flap its wings from one house to the other. Then, the morning light still waxing stronger, old patriarchs would rise up in great haste, each in his flannel gown, and matronly dames without pausing to put off their night gear. The whole tribe of decorous personages who had never heretofore been seen with a single hair on their heads awry, would start into public view with the disorder of a nightmare in their aspects. Old Governor Bellingham would come grimly forth with his King James Ruff fastened askew, and Mistress Hibbins, with some twigs of the forest clinging to her skirt and looking sourer than ever as having hardly got a wink of sleep after her night ride. Father Wilson, too, after spending half the night at a deathbed and liking ill to be disturbed thus early out of his dreams about the glorified saints. Hither, likewise, would come the elders and deacons of Mr. Dimmerdale Church, and the young virgins who so idolized their minister, and had made a shrine for him in their white bosoms, which now, by the by, in their hurry and confusion, they would have scantily given themselves time to cover up with their kerchiefs. All people, in a word, would come stumbling over their thresholds, and turning up their amazed and horror-stricken visages about the scaffold, whom would they discern there, with red eastern light upon his brow, whom the Reverend Arthur Dimmesdale, half frozen to death, overwhelmed with shame, and standing where Hester Prynne had stood. Carried away by the grotesque horror of this picture, the minister, unawares, and, to his own influence alarm, burst into a great peal of laughter. It was immediately responded to by light, airy, childish laugh, in which, with a thrill of the heart, but he knew not whether of exquisite pain nor pleasure as acute, he recognised the tones of Little Pearl. Pearl? Little Pearl! cried he after a moment's pause, then, suppressing his voice, Hester? Hester Prynne? Are you there? Yes, it is Hester Prynne, she replied in a tone of surprise, and the minister heard her footsteps approaching from the sidewalk, along which she had been passing. It is I and my Little Pearl. Whence come you, Hester? asked the minister. What sent you hither? I have been watching at a deathbed, answered Hester Prynne, at Governor Winthrop's deathbed, and have been taking measure for a robe, and now I'm going homeward to my dwelling. Come hither, Hester, thou and little Pearl, said Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale. Ye have both been here before, but I was not with you. Come up hither once again, and we will stand all three together. She silently ascended the steps and stood on the platform, holding Little Pearl by the hand. The minister felt for the child's other hand and took it. The moment that he did so, there came what seemed a tumultuous rush of new life, other life than his own, pouring like a torrent into his heart and hurrying through all his veins, as if the mother and child were communicating their vital warmth to his half-torpid system. The three formed an electric chain. Minister, whispered little Pearl. What wouldst thou say, child? asked Mr. Dimmesdale. Wilt thou stand here with mother and me tomorrow, noontide? We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors? and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course their newest novels. Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out The Happy Writer Podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram, at Happy Writer Podcast. inquired Pearl. Nay, not so, my little Pearl, answered the minister, for with the new energy of the moment, all the dread of public exposure that had long been the anguish of his life had returned upon him, and he was already trembling at the conjunction in which, with a strange joy nevertheless, he now found himself. Not so, my child. I shall indeed stand with thy mother and thee one other day, but not tomorrow. Pearl laughed and attempted to pull away her hand, but the minister held it fast. A moment longer, my child, said he. But would thou promise, said Pearl, to take my hand and my mother's hand tomorrow noontide? Not then, Pearl, said the minister, but another time. And what other time, persisted the child? At the great judgment day, whispered the minister, and, strangely enough, The sense that he was a professional teacher of the truth impelled him to answer the child so. Then and there, before the judgment seat, thy mother, and thou, and I, must stand together. But the daylight of this world shall not see our meeting. Pearl laughed again, but before Mr. Dimmesdale had done speaking, a light gleamed far and wide over the muffled sky. It was doubtless caused by one of those meteors which the night watchers may so often observe burning to our waist in the vacant regions of the atmosphere. So powerful was its radiance that it thoroughly illuminated the dense medium of cloud betwixt the sky and earth. The great vault brightened like the dome of an intense lamp. It showed the familiar scene of the street with the distinctness of midday, but it also showed the awfulness that is always imparted to familiar objects by unaccustomed light. The wooden houses with their jutting stories and quaint gable peaks, the doorsteps and thresholds with early grass springing about them, the garden plots black with freshly turned earth, the wheel track little worn, and even in the marketplace margined with green on either side, all were invisible, but with a singularity of aspect that seemed to give another mortal interpretation to the things of this world than they had ever borne before. And there stood the minister, with his hand over his heart, and Hester Prynne with the embroidered letter glimmering on her bosom, and Little Pearl herself, a symbol of the connecting link between those two. They stood in the noon of that strange and solemn splendour, as if it were the light that is to reveal all secrets, and the daybreak that shall unite all who belong to one another. There was witchcraft in Little Pearl's eyes, and her face, as it glanced upward toward the minister, Wore that naughty smile which made its expression frequently so elfish. She withdrew her hand from Mr. Dimmesdale and pointed across the street, but he clasped both his hands over his breast and cast his eyes towards the zenith. Nothing was more common in those days than to interpret all meteoric appearances and other natural phenomena that occurred with less regularity than the rise and set of sun and moon as so many revelations from a spiritual source. Thus, a blazing spear. A sort of name, a bow, or a sheer of arrows seen in the midnight sky prefigured Indian warfare. Pestilence was known to have been forebodied by a shower of crimson light. We doubt whether any marked event, for good or evil, ever befell New England from its settlement down to revolutionary times, on which the inhabitants had not been previously warned by some spectacle of this nature. Not seldom it had been seen by multitudes. Oftener, however, its credibility rested on the faith of some lonely eyewitness who beheld the wonder through the coloured, magnifying, and distorted medium of his imagination and shaped it more distinctly in his afterthought. It was, indeed, a majestic idea that the destiny of nations should be revealed in these awful hieroglyphics on the cope of heaven. A scroll so wide might not be deemed too expansive for providence to write people's doom upon. But what shall we say when an individual discovers a revelation addressed to himself alone, on the same vast sheet of a record. In such a case, it could only be the symptom of a highly disordered mental state, when a man, rendered morbidly self complative by long, intense and secret pain, had extended his egoism over the whole expanse of nature, until ferment itself should appear no more than a fitting page for his soul's history and fate. We impute it, therefore, solely to the disease of his own eye and heart, that the minister, looking upward toward the zenith, beheld there the appearance of an immense letter, the letter A, marked out in lines of dull, red light. Not but the meteor may have shown itself at that point, burning duskly through a veil of cloud, but with no such shape as his guilty imagination gave it, or, at least, with so little definiteness that another's guilt might have seen another symbol in it. There was a singular circumstance that characterised Mr. Dimmesdale's psychological state at this moment. All the time that he gazed upward to the zenith, he was, nevertheless, perfectly aware that Little Pearl was pointing her finger up towards old Roger Chillingworth, who stood at no great distance from the scaffold. The minister appeared to see him with the same glance that discerned the miraculous letter. To his features, as to all other objects, the meteoric light imparted a new expression. Or it might well be that the physician was not careful then, as at all other times, to hide the malevolence with which he looked upon his victim, certainly, if the meteor kindled up the sky and disclosed the earth with an awfulness that admonished Hester Prynne and the clergyman of the day of judgment, then might Roger Chillingworth have passed with them for the arch fiend standing there with a smile and scowl to claim his own, so vivid was the expression, or so intense the minister's perception of it, that it seemed still to remain painted in the darkness after the meteor had vanished with an effect as if the street and all things else were at once annihilated. "'Who is that man, Hester?' gasped Mr. Dimmesdale, overcome with terror. "'I shiver him. Dost thou know the man? I hate him, Hester.' She remembered her oath, and was silent. "'I tell thee, my soul shivers at him,' muttered the minister again. "'Who is he? Who is he?' Canst thou do nothing for me? I have nameless horror in the man. Minister, said little Pearl, I can tell thee who he is. Quickly, then, child, said the minister, bending his ear close to her lips. Quickly, and as low as thou canst whisper. Pearl mumbled something into his ear that sounded, indeed, like human language, but was only such gibberish as children may be heard amusing themselves with by the hour together. At all events, if it involved any secret information regarding to old Roger Chillingworth, it was in a tongue unknown to the erudite clergyman, and did but increase the bewilderment of his mind. The office child then laughed aloud. Dost thou mock me now? said the minister. Thou wast not bold, thou wast not true, answered the child. Thou wast not promised to take my hand, and mother's hand to morrow noontide. Worthy, sir, answered the physician, who had now advanced to the foot of the platform, pious Master Dimmesdale, Can this be you? Well, well, indeed. We men of study, whose heads are in our books, have need to be straitly looked after. We dream in our waking moments, and walk in our sleep. Come, good sir and my dear friend, I pray you, let me lead you home. How knowest thou that I was here? "'asked the minister fearfully. "'Verily, and in good faith,' "'answered Roger Chillingworth. "'I knew nothing of the matter. "'I had spent the better part of the night "'at the bedside of the worshipful Governor Winthrop, "'doing what my poor skill might to give him ease. "'He, going home to a better world, "'my likewise was on my way homeward "'when this light shone out. "'Come with me, I beseech you, Reverend Sir, as else you will be poorly able to do Sabbath duty tomorrow. "'Ah, see now how they trouble the brain, these books.' These books. You should study less, good sir, and take a little pastime, or these night whimsies will grow upon you. I will go home with you, said Mr. Dimmesdale. With a chill despondency, like one awakening all nerveless from an ugly dream, he yielded himself to the physician, and was led away. The next day, however, being the Sabbath, he preached a discourse, which was held to be the richest and most powerful and the most replete with heavenly influences that had ever proceeded from his lips. Souls, it is said, more souls than one, were brought to the truth by the efficacy of that sermon, and vowed within themselves to cherish a holy gratitude toward Mr. Dimmesdale throughout the long hereafter. But as he came down the pulpit steps, the grey bearded sexton met him, holding up a black glove which the minister recognized as his own. As was found, said the sexton, this morning on the scaffold where evildoers are set up to public shame. Satan dropped it there, I take it, intending a squallious jest against your reverence. But indeed, he was blind and foolish, as ever and always is. A pure hand needs no glove to cover it. Thank you, my good friend, said the minister, gravely, but startled at heart. "'for so confused was his remembrance "'that he had almost brought himself "'to look at events of the past night as visionary. "'Yes, it seems to be my glove indeed. "'And since Satan are fit to steal it, "'your reverence must needs handle him "'without gloves henceforward,' "'remarked the old sexton, grimly smiling. "'But did your reverence hear "'of the portent that was seen last night? "'A great red letter in the sky. "'The letter A.' which we interpret to stand for angel. For, as our good Governor Winthrop was made an angel this past night, it was doubtless held fit that there should be some notice thereof. No, answered the minister, I had not heard of it. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz, and if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It is the easiest way to help get this in front of as many people as possible, and reading them really, really makes my day. Once again, thank you for watching, and until next time, bye bye